And so I'll ask you to join with me again in prayer. And gracious Heavenly Father, we've heard so many things this morning. And our, our minds find ourselves moving in so many different places. But for this moment, I pray that the Holy Spirit would quicken our conscience by the holiness that is yours. And that as we open your word, you would feed our mind with the truth and that you would purge our imagination with your purity, that you would open our hearts to your love and that you would devote our wills to the purposes for which you have designed us as a heavenly father, we, your children. And this we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I need to begin this morning with a a bit of caution as I invite you to join me me in returning to the passages that we've been studying in the Gospel of Luke and coming to Luke 15. The very nature of the story that Jesus tells here requires extreme and very tender care. As you may remember, the overall message of Luke chapter 15 is intended to reveal God's heart for the lost. And, And this morning we arrive at verse 11, which is probably the most familiar parable of of all that you'll find within this chapter, the parable of the prodigal son. But there are two things about this passage that do really require special handling. The first is that when we get to verse 11, here things get extremely personal. Already Jesus had told two stories that revealed his passion to seek and save the lost. One was about a lost lamb, and the other one was about a lost coin. But at verse 11, Jesus hits us at the heart and at the core. Because the story he tells us is not about an animal or some inanimate object. It is a human story and an intensely human story. And suddenly all of the issues of lostness become personal. And I might as well add it, painful as well. You cannot read this without reliving maybe your own personal drama or even reopening your own old and painful wounds. I have to assume that there are many here within this congregation who have, 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 like me, experienced deep and intense experience with a prodigal son or a daughter. And no matter how it has turned out, maybe for the good or maybe for the bad, just being reminded of it, resurrects that dark and hopeless feeling of despair. It takes you back to that dark place. So that's one good reason for special handling of this passage. And because of that, I just can't preach the passage because that's the second reason for for special handling. Because when you preach, you can hammer out points from the pulpit. I laugh with the people in the the booth there that... uh, PowerPoint wasn't new. I had the PowerPoint from the beginning. It was called my index finger. PowerPoint. When you preach, you can hammer, but this is not a hammering point. And so I simply am going to have to ask you to indulge me this morning while it is still morning and just walk with me as I take this passage step by step and reflect on the greatness and the goodness of a God who loves you. So let's start our walk as we come to verse 11. There we, 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 we join three characters. Look at verse 11. It says, there was a man who had two sons. If I was a film director, 
This verse would probably begin with kind of the largest uh, possible camera lens and, and, and show a panorama of a homestead, almost like a rerun of Bonanza. And, and, and there's a hive of activity going on in the background, but at the center there are three characters who stand strong, st- strong and tall, a father and his two sons. And then verse 12 tightens the focus uh, of the lens. Uh, and, and, and then to the three, the father and the, and, and the one son only, the two. The younger one said to his father in verse 12, Father, give me my share of the estate. I might as well translate it in the Shrag version of Greek. Give me my, my share of the estate. By common law, it was assumed that the estate of any father would, in fact, go to the sons, but only upon his death. Oh, a father was not necessarily bound by that tradition. He could do what he wanted with what he owned and divide it wherever and however he wished, which apparently he chose to do here in this request. So in verse 12, the father divided his property between them. And the standard for the division between two sons was to divide the state into thirds. The older son would get a double portion of that estate, and the younger son just a single share. That was the tradition. Keep that in mind for next week when the older brother comes into the scene. But for now, keep the focus on these first two, the father and younger son, because it becomes a portrait of pain. Already the picture has become ugly. Let me tie together two themes from the culture of the day. Something that may seem foreign to us, and so we need to understand this. First, the pain of separation. I, I, don't, I didn't realize how intense this parable must have been for those who had circled Jesus that day to hear him tell this story until a number of years ago when I spent time with a number of rabbinical scholars at a shiva in Jerusalem when I was teaching there at Wheaton College. And they sought to explain to me the age factors that exist in Judaism. At eight days, there is a ceremony for a baby, and specifically for boys, that includes circumcision, where the child is then marked for life as a member of a very special family. Eight days. And at 12 years, there's another ceremony, one for girls and one for boys. For the boys, the bar mitzvah, and for the girls, the bat mitzvah, where the child is then elevated into a circle of adults uh, in order to participate in the teaching and the instruction. And it's no surprise that when, we, when we, just, we, we, we follow Jesus in the Gospels, we find that he's brought to the temple for a blessing as a baby at eight days, but also as a young boy at 12. It's his bar mitzvah. We are also given Jesus' age when he begins his ministry in Luke chapter 3. We are told that at 30 years of age, he entered into ministry. And again, according to the rabbinic teaching, this was a very significant age marker. 30 years of age was the threshold for a person to be considered an elder or a prophet or a priest. That was tradition. Now, I was aware of all those ages, but I was surprised when they told me that there was one more age factor within their faith, and that is the age 20. And if I remember correctly, this was referred to in 1 Chronicles chapter 23, where at 20, a young man had to make up his mind whether or not he was going to take on the national identity and responsibility to be a Jew. If so, he would then be drafted into the army and be considered a full member of the nation of Israel. But if not, well, 
That decision was more than just a matter of military draft service. It was a repudiation of his heritage, a deliberate statement that said, I have decided I will not be a Jew. I may carry the marks on my body, I may carry the memories in my head, but that's it. I am out of here. And off they would go. And for the family they left behind, it was as if ceremonially that that, that son had died and was no more. That explains why the father would say in verse 24, the son of mine was dead. And I have to be convinced that when Jesus told this story, he was circled by parents who had endured such a moment for themselves. Just as much as I am convinced that even as I As I look at this passage, I realize there are families in this sanctuary who have watched their own sons and their own daughters turn their back, not on their heritage, but on you, and walk away, leaving a pain and heart that is utterly exquisite, especially because there's nothing you can do about it. That's the pain of separation. But there's even more. Given the culture, what we find here is the added pain of insult. As I mentioned, typically an estate was divided only at a father's death. And that that, that thought may escape us here, but the intention of the son's request was utterly clear to those who were circling Jesus on that day. In essence, the, the son was saying to the father, as far as I am concerned, you are as good as dead to me, so hand over the money. What utter rejection. And just so that nobody escapes the point, when Jesus is speaking of the Father here, he is talking about God. We, we find our closest identity with the brothers. But here God's identity is bound up in the Father. I've got to keep that in mind because the urge is so strong to wrap myself up as the Father in the story myself with this shroud of parental pain, and missed the larger point that Jesus is trying to make. God is woven, has woven a principle into creation which is called free will. That freedom that allows individuals to choose him to be a father. Oh, we are marked by his creation. <clears throat> we are blessed by his bounty, but we are raised to a point where we must decide whether or not we will belong to him as father. And there are some here, even this morning, who have been tempted to say, as far as I am concerned, God is dead to me, and I am on my own. It is something that that God allows, even though it breaks his heart. And for a season, the Father steps aside. We read in verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got got together all he had, and he set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and his, in wild living. <clears throat> As a father myself, I really don't want to go there. You know what it's like if you have a prodigal. Your imagination runs wild with all the images of, that, that are <laughs> tucked into that simple term, wild living. Whatever... Whatever happened to that little boy who used to call him daddy, the father has to stand aside while the son takes his trip into the darkness. And my my mind is terrorized by questions that I cannot answer. 
What is he doing? What is happening to him? Will he be safe? Will he be hurt? Will he be sick? Will he remember that he wasn't raised this way? Will he remember my love? But the son is gone. Into a distant land, it says, and there to dance with the devil. Surrounded by a pack of shallow friends, happy (laughs) to help him spend his money as long as he can cover the tab. How long? Jesus really doesn't say. A week, a month, a year? Satan doesn't steal the son's soul in a moment. He keeps coming back for more and more and more and more until one day the bill is higher than he can pay. And suddenly the boy finds himself alone. No food, no friends, no family, nothing. So in verse 14, it said, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. I'm struck by the word here, the word begin. It's a sign that his soul is beginning to awaken, that he might have arrived at at a turning point here. And that maybe he's just beginning to understand the true costs of his choice, the consequences of his actions, and that it's costing him more to pursue his own will than to embrace the will of his father. But notice that sense of need didn't turn him around. Not right away. He was still possessed of a very stubborn streak. I can do it on my own, verse 15 it says. So he went and he hired himself to a citizen of that country. You see the pride there? I hired myself. Really? You hired yourself. To do what? Finds out to be sent to the field to feed the pigs. And what happened to him when he got there in verse 16? He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. You have to understand, for a Jew, no job could be worse than slopping pigs. And I can't think but that maybe that simple job hit him like a brick. That's not how I've been raised. And the hunger pains in his belly, they made him jealous of pigs. But, but even that was a shock, a revelation of the animal he himself had become. As a pastor over the years, I've had parents come in anguish, and they ask, how long will this last with my son? How long will this last with my daughter? And and the only answer I can give them is, as long as there is pleasure in it, as long as there is pride in the product of sin. So if anything, pray that God will suck both the pride and the pleasure out of it. Put a famine in their land. I'm glad that in my Bible there's, there's a break here. If you've got a father's heart, here is where it hurts the most. This is as low as it gets. And in the father's imagination, he's saying, just look at what has become of my child. I did not make him for this. That is how the heavenly father is looking at you right now. From a distance, he's got his eye out for you, and his heart is broken, but he is waiting. Verse 17. When the son came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. 
I'll set out and I'll go back to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, so make me like one of your hired men. (laughs) That, That is an expression of an epiphany, an awakening, a moment of clarity. From the pig pen, he got a vision of his father's house. I love the way Evie Hill preached it when he said, when you're living in Papa's bed, when you eat in Papa's breakfast, when you get an allowance from Papa, when you get clothes from Papa, Papa seems like an awful monster. But when you get out there and there's no cash, no clothes, no love at all, Papa's house, start looking good. So the boy said to himself, let me come to myself. And in my father's house, his servants have bread enough to spare. In my father's house, with rules and regulations, they still have enough bread to spare. In my father's house, with do's and don'ts, they still have enough bread to spare. I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to get up from here, and I'm going to go over there, because there's bread. I left that house knowing that that, that house was not worthy of me, but I'm going back knowing that I'm not worthy of it. But I'm going to get up, and I'm going to go back, and I'm going to go through the front. Uh, not, not going to, I'm not going to go through the front door. I'm going, to, I'm going to go through the back door, and I'm going to ask to be made a servant because I'd rather be a servant in the house of my father than a master of nothing. I will arise, and I will go. The Bible says in verse 20, he got up and he went to his father. He had rehearsed his lines all along the way, and so they came straight from his heart. And when he saw his father in verse 21, he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That is the heart of repentance. It is what has to be said. It is what he has to say and put into words. It is the only way the soul can lay its burden aside to actually utter the words, I have sinned. It lets all of the air out so that you can actually start to breathe again. It's the only way you and I can ever come to God to say to him, I am not worthy. There's nothing wrong with that. That's the voice that brings you to your senses. And that's the voice that brings you home. But once that's been said, then you've got to listen. Because the Father has got to be heard. Look again at verse 20. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. He had been looking. He had his telescope out. He had been looking on the binoculars. He had been watching. He had been looking. He had kept his eye on the horizon. God's been watching for you, too. He's got his eye out. And it's one that never blinks. The father saw him, and and filled with compassion for him, he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. Now, again, from what I've learned of ancient culture, in that day, men did not run. It was considered undignified, it was considered to be shameful, but in this case, he doesn't care. It's my son, it's my son. And then the son says his peace, and the father... Uh, he stays the course. He says, you're not worthy. You got that right. No one can earn the type of love I have for you. It is something that you can only receive. You've come back and now you've made your choice. You've come home. Let me give you a hug. You're my child. I love you. 
And in verse 22, it says, The father then turned to his servants and said, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it and let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine who was dead is now alive again. He was lost, but now he's found. So let's celebrate. <laughs> Ken Geyer writes, he said, For the son's lost dignity, the father bestowed upon him a robe of honor. And for his bare servant's feet, he put upon them the sandals of a son. And for the hand that squandered an entire inheritance, he gives a signet ring that reinstates the son's position of authority in the family business. And for his empty stomach, he hosts a feast fit for a king, a robe, a pair of sandals, a ring, a feast, all of them symbols of forgiveness and absolution and restoration. These are the gifts of grace for you and for me. I don't know where you're at. You may have, may, it may not have actually landed on pigs yet. But, but your journey may be heading in that direction. Come home. Come home. Come home right now. You weren't made to be that way. You have a heavenly father who knows you, who loves you, and is waiting for you to come, to come home. You have a heavenly father who understands and is willing to forgive you. Come home. You have a heavenly father who's got a place for you at his table and is ready to start all over again. Come home. Just come home. One night, almost 12 years ago, I got a sense of how God must feel about, about each one of us right now as he's looking down the road, waiting for you to come to him. It was the night that my own prodigal son returned from home from a long and dark and a very painful separation. I went down with my wife to the Vancouver airport to pick him up in the darkness of the night. And when I saw him on that screen coming through customs, I got a piece of paper and I started writing in this poem, film from my heart. Let me just share it with you. My son is coming home. My son is coming home. He, when he went away, he left alone. And though my heart sought to follow into the darkness, he, he went alone and has been away. But now he comes. And he is not alone. Another holds his hand. The outline of this other is hard to see, but it is there with him, holding his hand. My eyes are fixed on my son. His, state, his, his steps are steady. I know his gait. I could tell it from a mile away. It is my son, and he is coming home. He is alive. He is alive. He is alive. And for him, my heart is open wide. This son of mine who was dead and has come to life again, he was lost. He's been found. And they began to become merry once again. Come home. Come home. The Father's arms are open wide. Would you pray with me? And most gracious and heavenly Father, I take great comfort.
in even calling you that by name even now. For I realize that even as I am a father, I do not stand alone, but I stand with a partner who knows not only what it is to be a father, but so much more. With an ability that, Lord, is so much greater than what I carry into life. I pray that, Lord, you would bring a sense of comfort and healing to those who themselves carry a pain in heart. A pain that that is inflicted by love itself. For you are love. And define it, sustain it, and by your spirit, empower it. I pray that you would touch the hearts in this congregation, giving hope as well as healing. And then, Lord, within this congregation, I pray that you would, you would whisper that word once again to those, Lord, who find themselves heading in the wrong direction to say, come home. Come home now. I didn't make you for this. I didn't intend you for that. I intended you to, to live with May and to enjoy the bounty of the kingdom of God. Come home. All it takes is that simple word of turning around and saying, I have sinned. I am yours. Forgive me, restore me, and give me life. So we come to you, Lord, with thanksgiving because while we were once lost, we are now found and are covered with the gifts of grace in the wonderful name of the one who loved us and gave himself for us, Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. In his name we pray, amen.